Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 405. This program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menucha Leina and Miriam Baschaya Sara Altais, Yekusil ben Leia Rochel and Rochel Basli Bafarkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadris ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altais. So we just concluded what is called the Yemetash Lumin, the days of compensation, so to speak, that come after Shavuos. Shavuos, outside of Israel, is two days in Israel, is one day. But the Torah tells us that they were able to make bring carbonus and the offerings in the time of the Temple, all the way till Yudbeis Sivan. And today we mark that as the Alter Rebbe writes. We shouldn't say Tachnun. So in a sense, we are still in the. I don't want to say shadow, but under the effects of Matan Teda of Shvus, though it happened 3,334 years ago, but every day it is renewed and we have to experience it like it's happening right now. Essentially, the mandate that we receive, the contract of our relationship and our partnership with the divine, with God, to make this world into a divine home. So, We'll talk about Poshvuz, we'll talk about Pasha's Baha which is this week and very fitting, as well as some other uh, timely and relevant topics. As always, thanks to you who generate these questions. If you're new to this program, please go to chsidasupply.com where there's a forum. You can submit any question. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits, completely anonymously. and. I will address that question in time. There is a backup, I have to tell you. Many more questions come in than I'm able to, that I can handle. Not even sure what to do about that. So we just chuck along and we move along and we will uh, ultimately cover the topics. I try to consolidate them so we have them all under certain categories, especially regarding the time in which we are in, as I mentioned, post shavuos So let's begin with that. And the big question is always asked, after any inspiration, how do we maintain inspiration after the initial spark dissipates? We all know, relatively, it's easier to get inspired and excited, far harder, and therefore far more costly to have a maintenance contract to maintain that inspiration, to integrate it, to internalize it. And that challenge exists across the board no matter when we get inspired, no matter what happens in our lives. And actually, Chassidus talks about Chassidus applied of course, is that this talks about this topic. So many places where he talks about asusa de la'ela, which means an awakening from above. And then we have to respond with an awakening from below. Exodus explains how when it comes from below, we initiate it, then it's more internalized. When it comes from above, it may be a higher revelation, more firepower, so to speak, but it's not as internalized. In the, in the words of the Gemara, Adam Reitzel it's a very common expression, but if you think about it, it's extremely profound in any area of life. What does it mean? That a person desires more, one measure, of his effort, his or her effort, generated by your effort and initiative, than nine measures given to you as a gift by another. Even though $9,000 or $9 million can buy a lot more than $1 million, but we still prefer the $1 million. Not that we don't want the money, it's because it's ours. You own it, and you'll also cherish it much more. We see how easy it is to blow a gift. Someone gives you something, you haven't earned it, so you don't feel the price that you've paid for it, so to speak. So there's something about the internalization. Now this is a rule that really applies to anything in life. Education, inspiration, even, I don't know how to say, even sales and marketing. If you can make someone own something and they feel it's theirs and it's relevant to them, that they're ready to make an effort and generate and initiate, be proactive even, then you know that you're dealing with something that is going to be lasting. And there are many, many examples of this. So this is across the board no matter what. When it comes to Shavu, it's the same idea. By Matan Teirah, we were given Matan, the gift of Teirah. There was also an effort to receive it, but it was primarily from above down, top down, and then comes the work of internalizing it. So how do you maintain inspiration? That's why you have a Torah and mitzvahs. 
that are not just once a year or once a month or once a week. It's every moment, every day. Every day, we have every day we daven, we pray. Every day we're supposed to learn Torah. Every day we're supposed to do mitzvahs. Kamilas chasadim. So if a person, not just by road and mechanically, takes the energy of whatever inspiration, in this case the inspiration of of Shavuos, and internalizes it into a routine, not just the routine we've had more until now, but we increase in it, both quantity and quality, that's how you channel inspiration and make it something lasting. That every day you increase a little more in davening, in the intention, maybe in the, the length of the time you spend davening and praying, same thing with learning Torah, increasing both quantity and quality in learning, and ultimately also in Gemilas Chasadim, the same, adding a little more tzedakah, a little more kindness, a little more giving to another, making that extra effort. As the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 15 in Tanya, what is real Avedah is growth. It's not just doing something by road and mechanically. Even if it's a beautiful thing, the time of the Talmud, they studied something a hundred times. They reviewed Shana Pirka, Meya Pamim. They would review what they learned a hundred times. That's pretty amazing, right? And yet it's called Leyavodai, not serving, because that was the custom, that was the routine, that was the habit. That was behavioral in a way, mechanical. The 101 time, you add one beyond your routine, beyond your regillus, your custom, your, your usual routine, that one outweighs the other 100. Now you can't get to 101 without 100. But it's the effort, it's that change, it's that getting out of the comfort zone, it's the shift into another paradigm. Like when we say, more than your heart and your soul, a little more than with all with all of you, with more of you. Ma'id. When you say toiv, good, toiv ma'id, very good, with all your very, so to speak. So that is the way it's explained, and that's the how we have to now of course the challenge is applying it and implementing it. But that is the essential way to do it, which of course fits very much to this week's Pasha, which follows. Usually after Shavuos, we either read Nosei or Baaleischa, depending on the different schedule. But this year, Nosei came first. Which I, but then comes Baaleischa. Baaleischa Sanedis says, Rashi, why does it say, raise the flames, Baaleischa? Should have said, Baaleischa. When you will ignite the flames, when you will kindle the flames. And the answer is because the mitzvah was that Aaron, the high priest, when he lit the menorah, it shouldn't just, he shouldn't just light the flames, but he should raise them. Atshatehi shalevas elameleha to the point that the flame rises on its own, which means when you light a flame, it takes a second to the catches. Wait until it's burning on its own, and then move to the next candle. Why is this so vital? And the Rebbe, for the Rebbe, this became such a central theme in so many of the Rebbe's sikhs. In the language of Chassidus, that when you inspire someone, when you educate someone, whether it's a child, whether it's a student, whether it's a friend, or whatever work we're doing, don't just share inspiration. Don't just ignite them. Make sure that they rise on their own. Make sure they can stand on their own feet. In other words, teach them methodology. Not just what to think, but how to think. Not just the answers to questions. Not just data and information, but how to answer questions. A method. That even when the teacher is not there, even when the source of inspiration has moved on for whatever reason, they have the tools of how to proceed, how to navigate. And it's a very easy way to test it. Do they, are they constantly dependent on their inspiration, on their inspirer, I should say. Now, we always need inspiration, and we always need teachers, and we always need mentors and guides. But do we have also what it takes to initiate and to teach others, and to be a flame that lights and ignites other flames in turn? So this is all the theme that follows Shavuos. Because that's what the key is. Now to take the experiences, the Sinai revelation, however one explains it, but definitely a divine power that gave us the ability to transform this very physical world and turn it into a divine place, a divine environment, that this is something we can do not only when we're standing at the, near the mountain, not only when we're receiving revelation, not only when we see Giluim and Ashpah, that is revealed to us by our teacher, by our Rebbe, by our mentors. 
But also when we're standing, so to speak, on our own, when, when it doesn't seem like anyone is giving you any direct energy. You're also receiving it, but you're, so to speak, on your own. And you burn on your own. You, you ignite, you are raising, the flames are rising on their own. So this is obviously part of the lesson of following Shavuos. So, continuing some post-Shavuos questions, which also follows up some of, the, some of what we've learned, some of what we discussed and learned in the last few weeks. Let me go with this. If Hashem, as you discussed before Shavuos, in the program before Shavuos, you discussed that why did Hashem give the Torah in the Midbar, in a wilderness, because the Torah, he wanted it to be in no man's land, free, that no one's charging royalties. So someone asked the question, if Hashem gave every Jew the Torah for free, and nobody can claim exclusive ownership of the Torah, as you discussed, why are yeshiva tuition so expensive? Okay, well, so let's keep this clear. The Torah is always free. The tuition is you're paying, we're talking now, of course, in a normal, decent halachic yeshiva that is not in any way exploiting anyone, God forbid. I'm just mentioning it just to, for the record. In a, you need to also pay teachers. It's like the famous story with the Alta Rebbe and the Chassid. The Alta Rebbe called him in and said, you have the mitzvah to be mefarnas, he said to the Chassid. You have the mitzvah to uh, support your family. I have the mitzvah of to educate my child. So let me hire you and help you do your mitzvah and you help me do my mitzvah. You'll teach my son. He was referring to the Mitla Rebbe. So the concept of Yisachar and Zvulam in general, which is more general than this story, but the general partnership is a completely Torah-sanctioned one. We do live in a material world, and material world pay, costs have to be paid. So it's true that Torah itself is free. Moshe Rabbeinu did not charge, but there is the concept of supporting your teachers. And that's why you have the Kohanim and the Levim, who were not supposed to have their own land, they were supported through Truma, Meiser, the different Meisers, the concept of Zdokim. So it's not because the Torah costs money, it's because it's the decent and normal thing to do very, at a very basic level. In addition to all other factors involved, how we become partners in the, in, with each other. There's a symbiosis. So that's the, the answer. Now why expensive? That's a question we've discussed many times in this program. It's a big debate going on where some argue that the yeshivas, their role was always to raise money so they can give children a good education. And those parents that can't afford, they would have scholarships or partial scholarships. So it deserves its own discussion that the tuition should not be prohibitive, obviously, because if it is, it can limit, God forbid, the education of the most important commodity we have is the children coming from Atentator. We know this. Banenu Arevin Badenu. The children were the guarantors, the only guarantors that God accepted to guarantee the Torah. So we need them more than they need us. As the Rebbe spoke many times in his sikhs, yeshivas and teachers are there for the children. The children are not here for the teachers in the schools. So we have to do everything possible to provide the best education without any prohibitions and limitations financially. Those that could afford obviously should and maybe give even more. It's called zdaqah. Education of our young men and women. So we're not talking about justifying over, over expensive and prohibitive and, uh, and um, uh, exorbitant tuition rates. We're talking about what every child deserves. And again, the Torah is free, but at the same time, there is a world in which we live, so there is the need to support those that provide us with these services. The best scenario always is, I mean... In a school, tuition should be mandatory. Again, except in situations where a child, a parent or families cannot afford it. And that has to always be done with the right discretion, never to embarrass and never to humiliate, God forbid. Everything done behind the scenes. Um, but, um, but at the same time, those, as I said, that are capable should definitely be giving as much as they can or even more to help a school. And if there's accountability and there's transparency, there's no reason this shouldn't work in a beautiful way. School is an excellent cause for people to raise money for. And, uh, and, and if they do their job correctly, they will raise, as the Rebbe always emphasizes in the role of yeshivas, both for boys and for girls. Okay. Following up that question about um, expensive tuitions, 
the person wrote, which I just neglected to mention. Let me read the end of the question. I understand that a moil is not allowed to charge for a service in case poor people aren't able to afford to afford it, but people give the moil a tip on a sliding scale based on what they can afford. Why don't yeshivas offer this type of system too? And I just, I believe I just suggested something of that nature. Obviously, it's case by case, and hopefully a school will be fair and do exactly that. And if a person really cannot afford it at all and they can establish that, no one's, no, you also don't want anyone exploiting the situation the other way around, then obviously the schools have to accommodate. So thank you for that. Um, dear Rabbi Jacobson, I recently read that so many people come to, came to the base of Migdash and Shavuos that they didn't have enough time to shecht, to slaughter, all the karbanas, the offerings during Yom Tov. So the Kahanim needed an extra seven days to finish all the karbanas. They called the seven-day period Yimei Tashlumin, as I mentioned before. Could it be considered that these days were like a Shavuos cotton, which would give people an extra opportunity to participate if they weren't able to do so in Yom Tov, similar to Yom Kippur cotton or Pesach Sheni, second Pesach? I would imagine the lesson from this would be obvious, that it's never too late. What intuitions would you add to this idea? Thank you, and have a healthy, productive, and safe summer filled with revealed blessings. Well, your point is well taken. I mean, I've never seen it named that way. Tashlumin is the name of it. But it has a similar idea that you can, that even if you weren't able to do it initially, you have days to compensate and f- finish the job. Pesach Sheni has the direct blessing and a shtakim farfal, and there's, there's, it's never lost. And we've discussed in previous programs, including this year, Pesach Sheni time, what's unique about that than the general concept of tshuva, that it's never too late. But that's not for now. It's the same idea, Yom Kippur cut in every year of right before Rishchidosh, that's what it's called. So they, they have something in similar. They have something in common, I should say, something similar. Um, however, each one has its particular message. The Shavuos message is that because it's not seven, eight days, seven days the Yom Tif, like it is Pesach and Sukkot, so you have the Tashlumin coming after Yom Tif. And that is the idea. The idea that especially today, the lesson that we can always continue. Now you could say, why can't Tashlumin go all year round? Because the same thing is with anything. You don't have a Pesach Shlishi, a Pesach Revi. You have the message. You have seven days after Shavuos to continue fulfilling whatever was not done. In, and today it's not about offerings. It's the prayers. It's the, it's the learning. It's the commitments to Teir and Mitzvahs and so on. And that's the power of that time. Every time has its energy. That energy of Shavuos lasts another week. Okay. And one final thing following up. More of like a thank you. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, for the first time in my life, I completed counting Sphira all 49 days. I would like to thank you for making the my Omer app, which was very helpful. I wonder if Hashem noticed that I'll win a prize. In all seriousness, what, po- what positive changes can I expect this year now that I finally counted Sfira all 49 days with Abrach? So I can't tell you exactly what to expect, but I will tell you that you can expect that new channels have been opened in your life. First of all, every time you do a mitzvah, a mitzvah is a connection to the divine, to godliness that's drawn down, from, and with, especially with Abrocha, Milosh and Hamshacha, that you draw down that energy into your life, and it's permanent. Yichud Zen Nitzchi, the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, it's forever. And therefore forever will impact you. In the case of Sphira, Sphira has the additional component of refinement, the refinement, as we say every day in the Sphira count, we refine our personality from Chesed Shabbat Chesed to Malchus Shabbat Malchus. So all that is not a, a temporary thing. All that was done is done in the fullest possible way with a blessing, a divine blessing. So you have all the strength that you worked in evaluating, examining, and hopefully improving your personal life. And that lasts. That's a personality change. That lasts. And personality improvement. Now, obviously, the more effort you continue, even after Svira, like I mentioned before, the initiative you take on your own, you perpetuate and continue maintaining, and more than maintaining, Mailam B'Kadosh, Growing. Remember, chesed, the refinement of love and discipline and compassion. I should mention them all already. Endurance and humility and um, bonding and dignity, which is basically chesed, gvore, teferes, netzach, chedis, seid, malchus. 
The bracha is made for 49 days, the blessing and the mitzvah of counting the omer. But the work of refining that is all year round. So the more you invest, the more the return will be. That's a guarantee. What you can expect, you know, generally speaking, even though we may do things sometimes for ulterior motives, most of us, or all the time, the Gemara says, a person should always do something for an ulterior motive because that's the nature of the person. And from that, they'll ultimately come to doing it for a pure motive. So, but at the same time, we don't necessarily emphasize that we have to get a reward or a promise or a, or a gift. God should bless everybody when we do mitzvahs. It says, You'll follow my ordinances and my laws. I shall bless you. So blessings you can expect and hope for. May God bless you and everyone in the fullest possible way, especially after you've made this commitment. And I thank you for thanking us. Yes, I've heard from many people. The Umrah app has helped many. And not just in doing the mitzvah every day with the bracha, but also in helping them grow in their personal and uh, lives and, and relationships. Okay. Now that we've done that, let's move to Baalescha. So now, Pasha's Baalescha. In Pasha's Baalescha, as I mentioned before, the first most prominent lesson is the one about the Menorah, right in the beginning, Baalescha Saneris. So I already have elaborated, I'll just add a little few more points, that I remember the Sikha, I've mentioned it many times, the last Sikha, until now that the Rebbe spoke to us, so we're talking about now 31 years ago. So the Rebbe spoke as he often did on that Shabbos, the theme that I mentioned, the, the inspiring, educating, illuminating people in a way that their flame rises on their own. Every human being, Ner Hashem Nishma Sodom, the soul of a human being is the flame of God. So we have a flame, but sometimes the flame isn't either revealed. It's just like a pile of flame under, under cover. So our job is to be menorahs, to be like Aaron, to light menorahs. Wherever we go, to ignite, to inspire, to help someone's soul begin to shine, to fan the flame, so to speak. But the goal is not just to fan them, not just to get them going, but to make sure they burn on their own. That the person with their unique voice and their unique contribution, their unique mission in life, should illuminate everyone that they come in contact with. This was a theme that the Rebbe emphasized countless times. And you see it, that even though today, every chassid knows we get koiches and the strengths from the Rebbe, but it's not revealed like it was before Gimel Tamas, before Chavzai Nader, where you can literally see it, go to a fabringen, a davening, a Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Simchaster, a Shavuos. So all those, we don't, see, we don't see that inspiration in a revealed way, even though it's there behind the scenes. So in many ways, what it focuses now is what are you going to do? the effort that you have to make, that the Rebbe said, like the Rebbe said in the first Yushvat, Tovshin Yud Aleph Abreng, and the formally, when he reformally accepted and assumed the leadership, he said, people shouldn't deceive themselves into thinking, that I'm going to do the work for you. Each of you has your work to do. In I will not deprive from helping, but basically meeting you halfway. You have to make your effort. So, this is the key message of Baal Eishcha in that context. And that's what the Rebbe spoke about back then. But those words continue to, to resonate and continue to let out a clarion call to each of us. And only in stronger ways and greater ways. So when you educate your children and students, and anyone you come in contact in that way, you know it's lasting. And that's what you see. Even those 31 years later, it's 30 years from Chavzayin Adr, when the Rebbe had the stroke. It's 28 years from Gimel Tammuz coming up, will be the Tavshin Pebez, will be 28 years from Tavshin Nundalad. And yet you see the growth, the unprecedented growth of Chabad and the Rebbe's influence because it became internalized. Flames are rising on their own. With the kayach of the kayin of course. With the power of the high priest who lit them in the first place. 
but it has its sustaining power, its perpetual power. And that's a tremendous lesson from Baal Eishcha. Okay, a few other questions that came in on Pasha Baal Eishcha. Let's cover that. Interesting questions. So, let's go here. In Pasha Baal Eishcha, the Levites are commanded to shave off all their hair all over their body. How do we reconcile this with the commandment not to shave our beards? Are the Levites exempt from the rules? If somehow the Torah is saying the Levites have to shave because hair is bad, then are we bad people if we have hair on our chests and legs? Well, so firstly, let's make this very clear. As um, Rashi brings, the Rambam, I mean, which is known, this was only for the Levites during that year, in the, during the time in the Midbar, when, during that year when they were first consecrated. This is not Heira Lederis. This is only then. And the main reason for it is that Samach Sadek brings in the Maimar Segalachas Metzeda, where he talks about the Metzeda who is also supposed to shave completely after the days of impurity of a leper. We're talking about spiritual leprosy. Is because when you're, in, whether in the, or the same thing with, uh, with other scenarios, as he brings there in that Maimar. So with a leper, the reason is because the impurity especially in the hair, which feeds off the impurity. The of the hair is very powerful, so you have to get rid of any type of negative influences. So it's not meant to be a permanent state. It's meant to, like, you shave off once in order to get rid of any of impurities. The Levites, because of the great Gedusha, that they were coming from from Yitzhiz Mitzvah, Matan Teira, and they were now being elevated to the state of being servants in the temple, so you have to make sure that there's no, 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 nothing clings. Here, even physically, we see that what clings to it, because it doesn't have so-called the same protection like the internal organs, he explains there, that's where bacteria gather. He doesn't mention bacteria, but the same idea, spiritually speaking. Here is Moisimechen. It's a very, very limited amount of energy that flows into it. That's why here has such significance throughout the Torah in general. On one hand, hair has tremendous power because it's coming from the deeper levels, as Chassidus explains, of Moichen Stemah and the Yud Gimel Tekune Dikne, the 13 strands of the beard that come from Yud Gimel Midas Harachimim, 13 attributes of compassion. This is all levels in Kabbalistic terms, Keser, Arich, Atik. On the other hand, the hair is a very, very narrow flow, like a narrow, think of a narrow wire. So... When in protected state, the hair tremendous, carries tremendous power. That's indeed why we're not supposed to cut our beards and our payas. But then the situation, for example, what we do, we do, we do cut the top of our heads. We do take haircuts. Then you have the story, as I said, the Levites in the Midbar. They were supposed to shave, like the Mitzayr. And then you have the story with the Nozir, whose hair actually gives him power. But that's during the time of his Naziris, a Nazarite, when he takes the vow and doesn't cut his hair. That's why Shimshon's strength came from his hair. So he explains that this is from based on my Marim of the Alter Rebbe. How does he reconcile all this? Women, before they're married, they're, they wear long hair, and, and boys don't. When they get married, they cover their hair, and men don't. We cover with a yarmulke, but not the full covering like a shaitl. So all this is answered because hair has this paradox. On one hand, it has tremendous power. On the other hand, it just narrow strands. So all based on the circumstances, either covering or cutting or trimming or not cutting, all depending if the circumstances are such where there's a lot of gedusha that's protecting them, the hair has great power and you don't touch it. But where there's a possible yunika sachetzenim, you either cover it or even more, you shave it. But as a one-time thing, like I said, this is not common. So it was a one-time thing, correct, that they, they shave, but, but for the reasons as I just said. Okay. Well, the lesson we learned from that, talk about chassidus applied, is that every part of a human being, even something like hair, which we wouldn't even think of as being, like the mind we understand, the heart, we align our minds, our hearts toward, toward, uh, toward learning Torah, toward being kind, toward being toward Avas Yisrael, Avas Hashem, love others. But here, you think it's a trivial thing. Who thinks about here? And yet, you see how everything is significant because everything we were created, we were created in the divine image. And our hair reflects 
so-called the spiritual here above. And on one hand, it carries tremendous power. On the other hand, it has to be very much protected. Because here's a place where it actually protects us. One of the reasons we have here, even scientifically, is because it, it catches dust and other bacteria and other things to protect the body from infection. So you have the outer layers, you have the hair, you have the skin, you have the sweat glands. So it's a lesson in life how everything can be sanctified in our lives, even our hair. I believe, I don't have the episode in front of me, but if you do a search at chassidusapply.com here, I believe I discussed this more at length in a few previous programs, all the different aspects. Here I was just touching upon the, the Levites and the Levim. Okay. Next question. Why did the Jews complain about the mon, the perfect food, in this week's chapter? They told Hashem that they hated it and it tasted worse. <laughs> this person writes in yeshiva cafeteria slop. That's not exactly what they said, but they said pretty harsh words. And they wanted to eat meat instead. Wasn't the mon a perfect food made directly through God's miracles? Why would we not want to participate and appreciate miracles? So first of all, if you read in the Parsha, you see the Mesenonim and the Afasfas, the Afasfas, the Erevrav. This was an incitement. It wasn't because the man was not satisfactory. There were people who have grievances before the man fell. The man was an excuse. And when you want an excuse, it's also a lesson in life. There are many people who are, who are very begrudging and they're very angry about something. They, and they dress it up with some excuse. The food isn't good, the drink isn't good, the room isn't good. So if you look at it, you really see that there was a complaint. They were looking to complain. Defiant of God. So then they found reasons. Maybe precisely because of that. Because the man didn't look like a regular piece of food. And it changed shape and, and taste based on how people wanted it. So you could, as I said, you can always find a reason. On the other hand, when you appreciate your life, and you appreciate the gifts of your life, you realize man... Bread from heaven. They didn't have to work in the fields to get bread from, from earth. What better gift than that? But when you don't appreciate your gifts, this is what happens. Now, Chassidus goes further and says there's a need to have also bread from earth, as well as meat. And that's why Hashem gave them meat. And that's why we eat meat today. But in, 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 with uh, moderation. Here we learn, on the contrary, God gave them meat, but He told them the meat till it comes out of your nose. It's one of the few places the Torah has almost like a uh, tongue-in-cheek sense of humor. Because indulging in materialism, not appreciating God's gifts, is the key here. So if you eat meat with humility, and you refine the meat, and you elevate its sparks, but at the end of the day, the man was a great gift, exactly as you said. And the Torah even says, even when they're using, even when they're criticizing it, they're using beautiful terms about it like crystal and the way, it, the way it was produced but as I said when you want to complain you complain and that's what happened here the complaint was the issue not, not the actual food one more thing I would add is that the fact of the matter is the man only fell during the 39 years in the Midbar afterwards the work is to make a to work from the ground up no pun intended, and transform the world from within, bread from earth. But the man gave us the strength for those 39, 40 years to give us strength that knowing, like the Rebbe Marash says, that Parnosa today is like man. If you really look at it, and people who are in business can tell you that it's not always your effort, there's the mazel, there's the breast blessing from above that Parnosa is connected with. So the truth is the man gives us that awareness, but the work has to be done from below. Okay. Who were elder Amida? Amida, yeah. At the end of the chapter we read, in the same context, what happens that um, when Moshe says to Hashem, he says, what, where do I have meat from? Why are you putting me in this position? So Hashem says, gather 70s, Kenim, elders, and I will pass on from your spirit upon them. 
and it will come through them, will be that hashpah. We discussed many times what that exactly, the significance of it is, and that's where the word atzillus comes from. That is a sense like an interface to draw down from a level that's higher than physicality, to be like an interface between the spiritual and... <coughs> excuse me. And the material. Okay. Then it continues and says that two of the, two of the people did not go when they were gathering them. They remained and they were prophesizing. To the point that Yeshua, well, first came messengers and said that the elder Demidah are prophesizing. Yeshua actually says to Moshe, why don't you imprison them? Why don't you do something about it? And Moshe says, Alavai, I wish everybody, God's, God's spirit would fall on all the people. No, as he saw it as a, a beautiful thing, even though it does say in the Gemara and the Midrashim that they were prophesizing things about what happened after Moses' Moses' life, but they were also prophesizing other things about the future, about Mashiach. <clears throat> That's what Moshe's answer is. So it's like somewhat of a mysterious little piece of the chapter because you see that on one hand it seems like they're trying to supplant Moshe, and Moshe says on the contrary, which actually is the whole story of the 70 Skanim in the first place. What are the 70? The 70 are in other words, Moshe saw the value that the spirit of that the Hashem had in, on Moshe should also extend to others. And, and Halavai, and we wish it would be it to everyone. But everyone receives it in a minimal way. This Canaan, of course, in like a Natsilazdika way. When you look in the commentaries, you'll see in Medrash, Das Canaan and Balatesvis, they say that Elder Namidas actually have brothers of Moshe. They're two different opinions. According to some, they were children of Yechevet, but not of Amram. And according to the Daskein and Balatesus, they were children of Amram, not of Yechevet. This is discussed in other places, just in a, as an aside in this picture, which only adds to why Moshe would see it as a positive. He, they were his half-brothers. But the truth is, he didn't say it because they were half-brothers. They, he said it because he wanted everybody to have the spirit of Hashem upon them, which itself is an interesting lesson, that we all have that ability to some extent. doesn't mean everybody's a novi, but it means that there's a lesson to be learned, that we should all be channels for the divine, for godliness in this world. Why was Miriam punished for criticizing Moshe? Why was Miriam punished for disrespecting Moshe, but Yeshua was not punished for disrespecting Moshe by questioning his decision not to arrest and imprison Elder Demidah? Well, I wouldn't compare the two. You know, Yeshua saw obviously something that he thought was being, being like, almost like a mutiny. Um, Miriam was criticizing Moshe about the Kush, the woman that he took, his wife, that he later separated from and divorced. And um, as Rashi brings and the commentaries bring. So I don't know the comparison exactly. But to speak about what exactly did Miriam do wrong by criticizing Moshe Benu, if Moshe made some decisions that were controversial and opened the debate, then what did she do, so, did she do wrong by saying her opinion on the matter? If it's absolutely wrong to ever criticize Moshe Rabbein on any issue whatsoever because he is Moshe Rabbein, then maybe Hashem is wrong for criticizing Moshe for hitting the rock and humiliating him publicly by writing the story into the Torah. Will Hashem give him leprosy? Well, I, and there are a lot of things being conflated here. Let's just, let's just break it down into a few key points here. First of all, the fact that the Torah tells us the story and the Torah we know is very careful not to speak even bignusan, even disrespectfully about an animal, lahavdal, an animal that's not pure, means there's a lesson to be learned. A person has a right to ask questions, even of a leader, Moshe Rabbeinu. No problem. But here it says they were speaking about him. They were gossiping about him. Like so-called, basically like Loshan Har. And not just of a person. Every person you're not supposed to speak Lashon. Moshe Rabbein. And look how Moshe, how Hashem defends Moshe afterwards. So if they had a misunderstanding, if they felt they did something wrong, there are ways to do that. You don't sit and gossip about someone. That's a lesson for all of us. On a deeper level, yes, it could be they were pained by the fact that Moshe separated himself from his wife and then they found out that it was all meant to be. That Hashem actually commanded it. But then look how, Moshe, how Hashem talks about Moshe Rabbeinu. 
You're talking about a man called Basi, Neman who? Ever Neman, Hashem, my faithful, my faithful servant, who's my entire home, he's trusted. I trust him with my very being, God says. A man I speak face to face to, not like any other prophet. So we get some of the greatest statements about Moshe Rabbeinu as, my, as God that defends him. And even when Moshe then comes, after Miriam is struck as a punishment, leprosy, Moshe comes and defends her. Even then, Hashem says, okay, I'll heal her. But seven days they had to wait. And what do we know? That the whole people waited with Moshe Rabbeinu because Miriam had once protected and waited for Moshe. One hour became like seven days, as Rashi and all the commentaries and the Midrashim bring. So you see here a play that's not just Miriam did something terrible. There's lessons to be learned from her critique and her mistake, and especially speaking about Moshe Rabbeinu, and they should have given him the benefit of the doubt, or at least there's ways to ask the question. That's why she deserved what she got. At the same time, you see how Moshe protects her. So you have all the details are necessary in a story that when you see someone speak about somebody else, you learn how, how you're speaking about that person. Are you slandering? Are you gossiping? Are you, or you, are, you have productive interests here, constructive interests. On the other hand, you see that at the end of the day, even if a person like that deserves a certain punishment, we have to do it with moderation. We have to also recognize their virtues. And Miriam had great virtues. And Moshe respected that as well. And then finally, who are you speaking about? You're speaking about a person. Each one of us has a Moshe within us. Do you know who you're speaking about? Do you have a right to speak about anyone? Especially someone that has a divine soul within them. Someone that God communicates with, each in our own way. Obviously, none of us is like Moshe, but just look, taking a personal lesson that we can derive from this. And finally, regarding Miriam, the question is there a connection between Miriam having to wait seven days in quarantine after getting leprosy and a woman having to wait seven days before being allowed to use the mikveh? I have not seen um, a, coloration, a, co- a correlation between that, but if somebody has something they've seen, please share it with me. It's an interesting uh, concept. Um, I, I, the reason I'd be careful to compare because I don't know if the situation is the same, even though the seven days is due to impurity, which comes back to the Chetet Sadas, the original sin of the, the tree of knowledge. Um, and that is ultimately the root of all impurity, including all Lashon Hara as well. So maybe there is some commonality, but I've not seen it, and I will look it up myself. But if anybody has anything, please share it, and I will follow up about that. Okay. So we covered Shavuos, we covered Baalescha. Let us now cover some timely things and see how much I can, cover, I can really address here in this, uh, with the time limits of our program. Okay, so this is a, a sensitive topic, but important one that I've gotten quite a few comments about, both in writing and orally. People talk to me about it. So let's address it. Is it appropriate for schools, yeshivas, to have their students solicit their families for a fundraising campaign? So before I read um, a selection of, uh, of submissions that I received, let me just say this. The point of this, as always with Chassidus Applied, is not to criticize anyone and not to be judgmental and uh, to look at something from the perspective from all angles and through the lens of Teira and Chassidus, and especially as the Rebbe taught us, with the goal of making things always better. I always say this because when anything is sometimes criticized, people think there's some type of attack. God forbid. It's all coming from that perspective. And I'm sure there'll be follow-up to this. Your follow-up will be read whatever direction it goes. As you've seen in the past, it's what I try to do, keep a balanced perspective and present the different uh, angles of something. This clearly has touched a nerve by quite a few parents and people because of, uh, obviously, technology today and everything is far more amplified. So let me read one more scathing type of letter and then 
I'll, I'll read something that came in that's a little more defending the, the custom, or not the custom, I wouldn't call it a custom, this behavior. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first I want to give you a big yeshakir for all the great programs you do, the Teva Saklal. I'm sure you never hear from most of us who listen closely and learn from you more than you'll ever know. I should write to you just to give a karasatev, which is recognition and gratitude. But sadly, the way life seems to work, at least for me, is that I'm so busy making ends meet that I often don't take the time to do it right just because it is. So please accept this as an overall thank you on behalf of myself, my family, and many of my friends. Even though it is a very busy Erev Shabbos, I'm writing to you because I truly hope you'll address this issue on your, on your Sunday program since it is very timely. Not only for myself, but for many others who feel the same way but are uncomfortable speaking out. I live in a fairly large community where we have wonderful chinuch. Baruch Hashem, the Moses chinuch here, have undertaken a huge campaign to raise a huge sum of money to build a new campus for our children's school. This is a great thing and we are all grateful. However, this has come along with something that is very disturbing to many of us. The Anhala, the faculty, has pulled the children into this fundraising frenzy. You cannot imagine what this has unleashed. The children whose parents, families, friends have donated monies are being gifted with donuts, slurpees, etc., etc. The other children are either begging their parents to donate what they, what they don't have, crying for goodies, feeling left out and inferior. And all of this so-called name of Chinuch, in the name of Chinuch. Is this what the Rebbe meant when he launched Mifzah Chinuch? Is this what we teach our children? There's no way the school can say it is not because that is what they are currently teaching. These past few days have been difficult for many of us. This is, to me, appears so wrong. Why would our children have anything to do with fundraising? And how does a Chabad Moses Chinuch Egon stir up charm and beguile, beguile innocent children with prizes for money raised? This from a school that considers itself and is considered by many across the Chabad world to be a top cheder, an institution to learn from. The role of a child is to go to school, to learn teirach, siddis, derech eretz, midis tevis, etc. He or she needs to know nothing about tuition, raising funds, and reaping dividends from those monies. I was aghast to discover my son, age, 60, age six years old, begging his grandmother, who lives in another country, to donate to his fundraising team so that he can get prizes and nash like some of his friends. The school is working overtime sending out emails regarding the Rebbe's teaching about giving tzedakah. They are clearly targeting women regarding giving tzedakah before Shabbos and I'm sure they have plenty of other directives they've been and will be sharing targeting other sectors of our communities. What are, where are the Rebbe's directives about how to educate a Jewish child al Tarah When did it become okay for a Chedi Yeshiva to involve children in fundraising? I want to see the letters of the Rebbe that sanction and uphold us. Rabbi Jacobson, I don't have the knowledge to know if the Rebbe has ever spoken about something of this nature, but I find it incomprehensible and utterly impossible that the Rebbe would condone this. Please address this as soon as possible. You'll be helping many, many parents. This is a fact. Again, we are grateful to the school for all the goodness. It does, but sometime, something here is not good and should, not get, and should be set straight. We do not sell our souls, and certainly not the souls of our children, for money, not for any reason. Thank you, and good Shabbos. Okay, so I've heard this echoed by quite a few. Um, in, not in defense of the school, but I will say, look, a school needs to raise money, and sometimes you get caught up, fundraising becomes an end in itself, and it can be carried, or, carried away. Um, a school should have its own fundraisers, and there's many ways to build teams, as we know today, in the different crowdsourcing campaigns. But I totally agree that children should not become uh, a major part of this. There was a custom in the past, I remember when I was a child, that children on Fridays would go to homes with a raffle book to sell a raffle for $5, $10 for their schools. Even that was criticized by some, but it was definitely not done in a way that I was a primary thing and this became the center of that child's life. It was like a extra, an extracurricular activity on Friday. A little work was done. So you could debate that issue but if you turn it into something where children feel they come home and this becomes the center of their day instead of talking about what they learned in school and uh, as, as this writer writes of what, what the school is supposed to teach them and this becomes the thing, the competition and the gifts and so on, yes, there is a problem with that. I've not seen from the Rebbe about this, but I know that the Rebbe definitely was very strong in keeping children away from anything connected with money, which is why the Rebbe made it very clear never to stop 
a child from going to school because of tuition or other reasons like that. So besides the, the mere fact that a child shouldn't be exposed to that, but also a child should be completely focusing on learning and Torah. And when the child will grow older and understand the importance of Zaka, the child will, will learn that as well. So without going into defending or not defending, this is something we all should put our heads together and figure out how to do this in a proper way. Being that today crowdsourcing campaigns are becoming more and more popular, and once they hit technology, it's all over. I think discretion has to be taken, a lot of discretion has to be taken. What impression does it leave? So besides the very campaign itself, what impression does it leave? Then children will be looking forward to the next competition where they can do this again and then make more money or make more donuts or whatever the gifts are. Definitely not the place where the focus should be. You want to make a competition? Make a competition. Mishnai's Balpeh, Tanya Balpeh, learning. There are plenty of ways of Kinesofrim Tar Bechachma, which is healthy competition, but around Torah and around learning. So I'm glad I was able to address it. And I definitely want to hear from any of you who want to talk about this more in detail. This is not to take away the need for a school to make a campaign and to raise money. That's what a school has to be doing, as I mentioned before. One of the ways to raise is through these campaigns. I know it myself. I've also a moistened organization. We've raised money. But I didn't do this through children. We do it through adults. We do it through supporters. We do it to people who benefit and understand what the implications are. I'll add one more thing. When we were, uh, we were students, there was also a debate we were, that we were asked to do certain things in order to make some money for the school, yet to get on certain programs and so on. And it was deeply criticized and ultimately stopped because children, students, impressionable students, were being schlepped to go to different places just to sign their names as if they're working part-time so the school can get some benefits. It, it didn't leave a good taste in my mouth. It left me there, like, you know, that you can cut corners and do whatever you want just to justify because it's a school. And definitely not to bring students into it. So I just wanted to throw that into the pot. Um, so you have to be careful when you're raising money. Money can be a very addictive thing. It's necessary, but it has to be done in a way that is done and always altar psychiatrist as well. Okay. Since we're talking about schools, so someone asked this question. What are your thoughts on the recent government campaign to require yeshivas to teach more secular studies? Why are some people so opposed to, this, uh, to the government intervention? Okay. What's the big deal? Why can't yeshivas teach math and English? Why this whole campaign to fight the government? Why not just let it go? Okay. Well... The most important thing to remember here is that government shouldn't be intervening into a yeshiva system, period. It's not a question of what it's about. Because today it's one thing, tomorrow it's another. Who decides? You know, we live in a free society. And one of the beautiful things, especially for the Jewish people, or in general freedom of religion, is that governments and institutions don't dictate what schools should be doing. Whether the school is perfect or not, and what they should be teaching is their, that's up to their policy and up to the parents who send their children to that school. The children, don't, they don't want to send their children to that school. Everyone's entitled. No, no one's forcing anyone to send the children. But the government should intervene is a dangerous uh, precedent. That's the most important thing to remember. As far as the secular thing or not, so we know that I've talked about this at length, the Rebbe's approach about secular education. There are schools that don't teach it at all. There are schools that do have time for that. There are those that tutor children. I don't think the Rebbe ever meant that children shouldn't learn how to add and how to sign their names. The question is, how, how important is it? And how much of a priority do you make it? And can you live without it, so to speak? You can't be without secular education because you can't make up Parnassah. That was a clip that the Rebbe fought against. Sicha Simchas and Yutzvah Tovshin Tezvov. I discussed this many years ago on my life because it is applied. But for government to intervene, it's not their business. That's the, that's the key thing to remember in this, this context. In addition, we know that a lot of this was initiated by people who have grievances against these yeshivas. Legitimate or not, it's, it's a personal grievance. So figure it out. To go start getting the governments to intervene is not always a healthy, a healthy approach to it. That's the general gist of it, and that's my position now. Okay. 
Since time is limited, I wanted to th- talk about some other things. Let me just read. Uh, just give me one more moment here. I'm going to follow. I'm going to f- conclude with a question, a chassidus question, which is connected to this year Shemitah. Is there a connection? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, is there a connection between Shemitah and Shabbos? Why is Shemitah only observed within the borders of Israel, but Shabbos is required to be observed everywhere? So first of all, there is a connection. This year is a Shemitah. Shemitah year is every seventh year. is called a sabbatical year, where the mitzvah is v'shofsa ha'odet Shabbos l'Hashem, Parsha Bahar. It's an actual mitzvah, performed as well today in Israel that the land shall be rested. The Sefer HaChinuch brings the reason for it. One of the reasons, resting the land actually helps it later grow better. Similar to Shabbos. But Shabbos is a day of complete rest, not just the land. We're not supposed to do any malacha. Shemitah is only working the land. Other work you can do. So there has that common denominator, as the Chinuch and others explain, they both remind us that your life is not your own. God gave you the blessing of life and work. And God tells you that once a year, once a, a week, and once every seven years, you shall rest. Now, why is this one resting completely and this one resting only the land? So the Tzemach Tzedek, in Derech Mitzvah Mitzvah Shemitah, explains because both of them are Malchus, but one is Malchus that's connected to all Biyah, to everything in work, and one is Malchus that's connected particularly to land, to earth. So it's different forms of resting. And that does, they don't have to be exactly the, the same. Besides the practical side, could you have a whole year where you don't do any work altogether? But that's, but that's still not the, the ultimate reason. So if you look in that mind, it explains it more in detail, which also explains the difference in this question. Shemitah is only in Yisrael. Shabbos is obviously everywhere. Because Shemitah is talking about the land of Israel, the holy land. Since it has a particular holiness, Hashem says, so once a year, designate it to holiness. Meaning don't work it and spend the time learning or the different things that people did instead of. So it's in addition to the element of just in general sanctification of your life, which is both Shemitah and Shabbos, it's also sanctification of the land of Israel, Malchus, which is compared to Oretz. Oretz Hodim Ragli. Hodim Ragli. That there's the land that where God's legs, so to speak, meaning the lower levels of the divine, manifest. And that too is holy, and because of that we elevate it by sanctifying it on Shemitah. The personal lesson in our life is that in addition to Shabbos, which of course sanctifies every aspect of our day and our lives and our, everything we do on the seventh day of the week, Shabbos Kedish, we also have the element of recognizing that the fields in which we work remind us of God's blessings. It says, He remembers the one that created the world and then plants. Meaning that even when you're planting seeds, and you could say it's natural. You plant the seed, it grows. No, remember, that's also a miracle. It's just a miracle that manifests in nature. So the lesson is to all of us. The actual mitzvah is in Eretz Yisrael. And Shemitah, of course, reminds us, Yem just like the seventh day, the seventh year, there's also the seventh millennium. Elif which is Yem Shekulei Shabbos, that is, all leads to a, a, a millennium and a future that will be completely, one, filled with serenity and the divine rest, but not rest without work, meaning the work will be only in spiritual matters, Malach shamayim, in heavenly and divine matters. A world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Mala Oretz, Oretz, which Shemitah is, that's filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. This has been My Life Chassidus Supplied, episode 405. We're every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please go to chassidusapplied.com where you could submit your questions. Also, you can view and, and listen to all the previous episodes and the podcasts as well. They're available on all platforms as well as other resources of Chassidus. Everyone have a good tevach, a good week, and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied.
Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusupply.com slash donate.